This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices, sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, we'll look at our challenges of healthcare here on the Central Coast. People are in need of and benefiting from mental health services, but again, access to care is very hard. Also, you'll get an update on the progress El Camino Homeless Organization is making in North Slow County. Often the adults get involved with that. It might be an art program for the kids, and you see adults that participate because it's just a sense of belonging, a sense of community. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, November 13th, 2023. I'm Gabriela Fernandez. Let's start with healthcare. Healthcare on our central coast has some unique challenges. Previously, we've talked about the issues at high level looking down. Today, we're going to look more closely and discuss challenges facing both providers and the general public. Our guest is Kelly Sanders. Kelly serves as president of Movement for Life Physical Therapy, an employee-owned company headquartered in San Luis Obispo. A graduate of the University of Southern California, she has a doctorate of physical therapy. After many years as a clinician and clinic manager, she was elevated to lead the company. Almost a Central Coast native, she has been tireless in her commitment to the community activities, including the Red Cross, NOR Foundation, and recently serving as CASA board chair. Married with two children, she and her family are avid outdoor lovers and travel to the snow as often as possible. And she's a wannabe race car driver. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for having me, Stu. So Kelly, tell us a little bit about Movement for Life. We're an employee-owned company, and we provide physical therapy services here in Slow County. This is actually where we got our start in San Luis Obispo in 1999. And we've grown throughout those years, mostly based on like-minded individuals joining our team and wanting to relocate to other areas. So we also have clinics in Northern California, uh, Southern California down in the desert, and then Tucson, Arizona, as well as Asheville, North Carolina. And all of that was just because we had amazing people that wanted to be in those places, primarily for family reasons. Well, so how many clinics total do you have? We have 26 clinics right now. So Kelly, getting ready for our interview, you sent me some information from Slow Health Counts. And it sounds like a collaborative that meets every five years and reviews what's happening in the county. You're right. Every five years, they collect data on our county from surveys and a, a few other places, but primarily resident surveys. And then the the last time they did that was 2022. So they have data up through 2022 that I sent you. That's very recent, especially with COVID. Uh, we look at a lot of different things like census data. Um, and through COVID was a time that we really had changing demographics, changing needs, et cetera. So it was really neat to see their data because obviously we haven't had a census since 2020 uh, and their data actually goes through 2022 and identified kind of the top five big needs or, or pain points, I guess I would say in our county. And they talk about actually what we do good in the county as mm-hmm. well as where the areas for improvement. And, and let's just run through some of the areas for improvement because I think these become some of the major challenges that we're talking about with healthcare in our community. The first thing that they talked about was access to healthcare. What does that mean? So that just means healthcare being available to the people who need it, the individuals in our county that need services. And the reason access is so important in healthcare is because we see huge differences in patient outcomes, as well as the cost of healthcare, the longer someone waits to get in 
for that condition or injury or whatever it is to see a healthcare provider. So access to services or how fast someone gets there and if they're able to get to the correct service is super important to having a positive outcome in healthcare. So it's not just getting in to see a doctor, it's also getting to see all kinds of different providers. Exactly. So it could be their primary care physician, which in the U.S. healthcare model, that's a lot of where we start. But then any other diagnostics they may need, specialty care, um, things outside of physical medicine into mental health services. Access to all those services is really important. But unfortunately, um, a lot of times there's a huge delay or they just can't get in because of either geography, uh, the cost of health care, insurance. There's a lot of different barriers when we talk about access to health care services. The, the second issue, and I know this is not particularly what you do, but they talk about mental health. Absolutely. So that's something we're seeing more and more in our practice in physical therapy that people are in need of and benefiting from mental health services. But again, access to care is very hard. One thing that we've seen, though, is the ability of mental health providers to provide services virtually. So via telehealth has been huge. Um, it's not something that necessarily you might need to show up into a physical clinic or facility for. But we're seeing with the pandemic and lots of changes in our society, we're just seeing a lot of things require mental health support to address. Um, even in musculoskeletal conditions, which we treat, there's a lot that goes along with an injury. If, if we see an injured worker, for example, there can be a lot of stress or ancillary things they're dealing with. For example, they may not be working, so their financial needs are not being met. Uh, family needs because they're injured and can't care for people or provide for them, as I said, financially. So we're seeing a lot in that realm, as well as technology has progressed in medicine. The interesting thing we're seeing is a lot around diagnostics that we'll have a patient come in and say, well, my MRI uh, said I have a herniated disc. And in some cases, we're finding that can be more damaging to the outlook of the patient than the diagnostic itself. Because as, for example, I'm a 50-year-old female. As a 50-year-old female, if I have an MRI of my lumbar spine, there's going to probably be some degenerative disc disease, maybe um, herniated disc or some arthritis. But I don't have back pain. I'm completely asymptomatic. So that MRI finding that someone might construe as positive isn't necessarily tied to anything presenting clinically. And so for us, where that comes in, at least as physical therapists, is we have people coming in that have been told, uh, your back looks like the back of an 80-year-old. And so they, the patient comes in saying, my back is wrecked. I'm, I'm injured. I'm broken. And so we spend a couple visits talking about that and many times trying to get over the psychological issue that they're somehow broken and it needs to be repaired versus getting them moving again. Because the reality is sometimes it doesn't even, what they see in these diagnostics doesn't even correlate to the clinical presentation. So um, that's one area where when that's prolonged, we've we've actually referred out for mental health services quite a bit so that the patient can kind of come to terms with what their physical condition is and then how that's affecting the rest of their life as well. So the third issue that, that the study talks about is affordable housing. We know it's expensive to live here. Yes. This affects you, I'm sure, as well. That affects you not only in buying, but as well as rentals with, with the people that you're hiring. 
Exactly. So both renting, renting is usually a big part of someone moving to this area, especially from out of the area who's, for example, a new physical therapist or some of our support team members. Um, They're looking for rentals and the cost of rentals is high here in in this county. Um, Same thing, our providers, many of them are newer graduates. So this might be their first professional job as a physical therapist. So their big goal many times is buying their first home. Um, what we've seen is buying your first home is is hard. It's maybe harder than moving to this area and buying your second, third, or fourth home. So that's a big issue for us. And if you compare that to areas where you have other clinics, I'm sure that this is we're way above. Exactly, and and that from a business perspective, um, you know, living in this county since I was two years old, it makes me sad that I don't know how much we'll continue to grow in California. Right now, we're really not specifically in San Luis County. Most of our growth is in Arizona, North Carolina, and we're looking at things in Virginia now just because it's so much more feasible for our business with between regulatory things, but specifically cost of living and housing being the biggest cost. The fourth issue that this study brought up was drug overdose deaths. And I think for a lot of us, we think about drug use, but we don't really think about why the drug use or where the drug use came from. Can you elaborate? Sure. Uh, This is something that we've gotten pretty passionate about in some of our clinics. We see um, quite a few patients that have been opioid addicts or opioid users. Um, We've seen quite a few people become addicts based on the need for prescription pain medication because of a musculoskeletal injury. That's why we are really passionate about access because we know, and there's there's a lot of literature to show that if you are seen um, by a physical therapist or conservative care person first, there's a much lower incidence of being prescribed an opioid and you going on to become an opioid addict. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who's been prescribed an opioid is going to become an addict, not at all, um, but that is a big that is a big indicator, um, or there are a lot of people who become addicts because they were introduced to narcotics in a prescriptive environment. And so that's something we're really passionate about, wanting to make sure we get to people sooner, because we know if we get to them sooner, their course of care will be shorter, their outcome will be better, and they have a, a much lower um, risk of becoming addicted to a narcotic medication. And this rolls back to the first point, access to healthcare. Exactly. It, and that's why I thought it was really powerful that um, this Slow Health Counts thought access was the first and biggest thing we needed to address on the coast. And I, um, I, we see it every day in our practice. And the last point, which I found interesting as well, was obesity rates. So again, our biggest thing in physical therapy is movement. And if we can keep people moving usually we can keep them a lot of times in a healthy environment so we can reduce the risk of chronic disease, one of them being obesity as well as diabetes, uh, chronic conditions like heart disease, stroke, et cetera. So we've seen firsthand people come in. I've evaluated countless patients that come in and say, well, I actually haven't been exercising since I hurt my knee at 18 and they're 28 at that point. So again, it goes back to access, really getting that musculoskeletal condition treated when it first happens before it starts limiting your ability to move or your propensity to want to move. Because sometimes people can move, but they stop going to the gym. They stop taking their nightly walk. 
they start parking closer to the grocery store. I mean, it's there isn't even um, a huge threshold for movement that we have to hit. We just need people to keep moving. But we see injuries change that in people's lives a lot. And that those stories we hear, we really feel like it goes back to if we can if they can get access, if we can address it sooner, they're going to be more mobile. If you're just joining us, I'm Stu Soren. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX. We're talking with Kelly Sanders, president of Movement for Life Physical Therapy. So moving away from the report, let's go back to just the general mm-hmm. the general business of doing business here in the Central Coast. Previous guests have discussed the challenge of Medicare reimbursements. I mean, San Luis Obispo, when Medicare came out and the reimbursements came out, was a teeny tiny little community, and we were treated as a rural community, and therefore the, the reimbursements, at least we know to physicians, are, are very low in comparison to other areas. Now, as the cost of living has gone up, those reimbursements aren't changing, and it becomes a challenge. How about for your industry, for service mm-hmm. providers? Same situation? Um, a little bit different. For physical therapy, we are actually paid. Um, Medicare is one of our better payers. Um, however, the one win I think we've gotten across across all provider groups is that in California, there's multiple geographies now that have different payment rates. Um, and they call that uh, the gypsy or the geographic price cost index. And so recently in the last few years, San Luis actually has its own jurisdiction now, and they've broken out a lot of counties with higher costs of living that do get paid a little bit better than other areas. Um, it hasn't completely fixed the, the problem, but the one thing I will give CMS credit for, or Medicare, I should say, is that a lot of the commercial companies haven't done that. So we, we do get a little bit more than some other areas, um, but they are still cutting us every year. Like right now, there's a significant cut to the physician fee schedule that's put in what we call the um, the draft rule. The final rule will be out in November, which we get from Medicare. Um, but right now in the draft, it is slated to be a pretty significant cut. Still in the single digits, but that's something that every year we have to work with Congress to try to either put a patch in place. Um, but the last couple of years, we have seen a small decrease each year. How about for the commercial healthcare reimbursements. Are you struggling there as well? Yes. And I'd say that for for many providers can be even worse because a lot of them, there's very little increase available for many providers. We can negotiate increases. It's usually in the one to five percent category and it's not an annual increase. It definitely doesn't cover cost of living increases. Um, and it's, you know, usually maybe every five to 10 years even with negotiation, because there are still providers that will accept those rates. So it's, a, you know, supply and demand, but um, it's really hard to not serve your community either. So there's always this moral thing in our head. Well, do we stop taking on insurance and not serve these clients or, how, you know, how what is the best thing to do for our community? Um, so that that is a real challenge here in so, Slow County. So, Kelly, again, the commercial reimbursements. Is this something you're seeing across the board, or is San Luis Obispo hit a little harder than some of the other places that you do business? In the states we're in, it's pretty consistent. Um, There are states that pay much better than California, especially if you go to more rural areas like Wyoming, for example. Commercial payers pay much better because there's limited providers. There's still a lot of people that want to live here, a lot of providers. So we don't see a lot of pressure to increase payment in health care. So challenge decreasing reimbursables, decreasing revenue, increasing costs. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so there's been some conversation about cash-only payers. In other words, some practices are not taking Medicare patients or some practices mm-hmm. are only going to – do you see that as, as the future of the industry? Sadly, I do in many cases. We, we've recently started dropping contracts that we just can't afford to take anymore. It doesn't – unless we're going to really change the way we treat and really limit time with patients um, – it, it's really hard to keep seeing them. So we have we have dropped contracts. Um, we are seeing more cash. We do obviously accept cash. So a lot of people who were on those contracts that we don't take anymore, we see them as at a cash rate. The hard part when we start doing that is healthcare no longer becomes something that universally people have. If you, you know if you have health insurance, it's the haves and have nots, and that's a really hard thing. We had to make hard decisions to not take Medicaid or Medi-Cal in California. Um, and that's the hard thing I think we struggle with is how do we how do we serve our community but not accept all the insurances? Um, being employee owned makes that a little easier for us because we're supporting the employees that own us. Um, but it is it is a a big challenge, and I think something as a community we're really going to need to look at because then some of those mental health issues that you talked about, the opioid crisis, all of those things get worse when people don't have access to care. And that's the whole equality of care issue that we raise. If you're just joining us, I'm Stu Soren. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX. We're talking with Kelly Sanders, president of Movement for Life Physical Therapy. Another challenge I know that has just come up for you, California just recently passed House Bill 525. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what the effects are going to be for you? As that bill was signed a couple of weeks ago, we're actually excluded because it's mostly for people with more than 10,000 employees, which we're not there. Um, but what it means is there's basically a $25 minimum wage for healthcare workers. Anyone who works for a healthcare company that is of a certain size, uh, you will have to be making at least $25 an hour. Um, and it's not just for people making the minimum wage. It pushes all wages up, which is a good thing in so many ways. We all want to see people get paid more. The hard part about healthcare is that we can't raise our prices. So food workers obviously just got a raise to, I think, $20 an hour, I believe, as a minimum wage. But they can raise the price of French fries and hamburgers. They can raise whatever their menu prices are. Uh, we can't do that in healthcare or we have to drop contracts to do that. And so my my concern is that we're going to have to do more with less staff in some of those instances where organizations can't afford to pay people more because they're not getting paid more. And so that's that's one thing I really hope that with some of our elected officials, we can start collaborating and, and looking for ways to solve those issues. Because I don't, I think you can, you have to push on both sides. You can't just push on the wage side without addressing the revenue side. So you brought up the big point. I mean, you brought up some major concerns. Obviously, you've got you have to have revenue to be able to stay in business. You have to have employees to stay in business. So it's the cost versus revenue situation. We've talked about a lot of the challenges. I mean, what are some possible solutions? Sure. Um, so these are in various stages, I guess, and some are just my ideas. But I think the big thing with access, we we are a rural area or semi-rural, I guess, is our designation. And we don't have big health centers. We don't have um, hospitals that are known as teaching hospitals. Marion is actually one that does have residents now and physicians. We don't have schools that teach um, provider-type programs here. And so I think that's a big deficit because I think many people um, 
where they train or local people go want to stay local and go to school and become providers there. I think once we lose them to other areas, they don't come back. And it's hard to get back to this area after you've left it because of some of those costs. Um, so I, I think one thing is starting to have more residency programs here where people are invited to train here. Um, we've actually started a residency program for physical therapists. I know Marion has one for physicians. Um, and then very recently, um, A.T. Still University out of Arizona uh, started a satellite campus in Santa Maria, and they just graduated in September their first class of 90 physician assistants. So I think that's part of it. Um, there are still challenges within that, but I think that's a really a really good step in the right direction to start having people train here and stay here um, and have jobs here when they finish. So I also think it's going to take all of our medical facilities and private practices working with these schools to support them and provide clinical rotations, invite their students in as interns, and then provide them with jobs, which I think most of us are happy to do because of the provider shortage. The other part that I think is really important is to collaborate as providers and clinicians. I think there's a lot of ways we can work with primary care physicians because they're they're in such demand. And I really admire primary care physicians in our area because they're so busy and they are dealing with, I think, the brunt of the medical issues in our community. Um, so I'd like to keep working on ways we can collaborate. For example, just in physical therapy, and there's many. Um, as physical therapists, we do have doctorate degrees now. Um, we, they're clinical doctorates, we are not physicians. Um, but if you look at military models, for example, physical therapists and physicians work hand in hand. And physical therapists are really primary care for musculoskeletal problems. So if you have acute low back pain, if you sprain your ankle, if you hurt your shoulder, you first go to a physical therapist. And the benefit to that is offloading these poor primary care physicians who are so busy that we allow them space in their schedules for those medical conditions and the complex patient and the chronic disease patients that that truly need medical intervention from only a physician. There's other providers that can see some of the things that, is, that are being put on primary care. So I'd really, you know, we've worked in some circles, but we'd really like to continue to do more in a collaborative model to try to unburden our primary care physicians. And what about on the revenue side in terms of the reimbursables? I mean, I know this is this is not something that's going to be solved in San Luis Obispo. So what's happening nationally? Is there is there an organization that's working with the insurance companies? I mean, how how's that going? Slow. Um, so, <laughs> so yes, um, we have the American Physical Therapy Association, the APTA, which um, we are very active in. I sit on the board of the private practice uh, section of that. Um, and so we are. We're doing a lot with payment. I think one of the things we really need to do is sit down in our communities with our elected officials and talk about what are the barriers right now to health care. But since it's such a it's such a different business model because we can't just charge more. I think sometimes that whole cycle isn't understood by our elected officials. And so, especially when they change, we really need to invest time, which I think is another one of the solutions, is really spending time talking about the challenges in healthcare because it is so different than some of the other challenges that they're being pulled into. They are talking about changing the payment system in, in Medicare. There's bills being introduced, but it's slow. 
right now. There's a lot going on in Congress, as you probably heard. Uh, So they have higher priorities, I guess I would say. But we do what we call hit the hill days. We are very involved with our legislature um, at the APTA level, and we try to do that here in our communities because that's most things are driven by the Medicare fee schedule, even commercial insurances. Many of them do pay a percentage of that or they base their rates off the Medicare fee schedule. So that in the U.S. is a starting point for how we're paid. So changing that and changing the incentives is important because right now, basically, the more you see someone, the more you're paid. And that's not necessarily the financial incentive that we need to have a healthier healthcare system, in my opinion. I think the incentives might be a little bit backwards. So before we finish, is there anything else you'd like to add? Any other thoughts? Um, I will just say, I, I hope I wasn't negative. I think there's a lot of things in this community. And since I have had, had the opportunity to go to our different regions, I'm grateful to be in this community. I think if there's anywhere we can collaborate, I do think it's here. So I, I think I would just really encourage healthcare providers to come together and try to find solutions because I know it's really hard right now. Um, But I I hope people stay forward thinking and keep wanting to solve the problem because I think this community has so much to offer if we can find those ways uh, to work together to serve our community and care for our community. Kelly, thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest today has been Kelly Sanders, president of Movement for Life Physical Therapy. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX. I'm Stu Soren. Up next, Behind Closed Doors, a three-part series about domestic violence in San Luis Obispo County. I'm Melanie Sen. In early May of this year, I began reporting on domestic violence in San Luis Obispo County. I wanted to better understand the nature of domestic violence, the support available to survivors, and the response by law enforcement. I wanted to speak to people who had experienced domestic violence and what it meant for them to get out of their abusive relationships, if they did. What I learned from dozens of interviews was that it can be very difficult to get out. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, it can take seven attempts to leave an abusive relationship. Leaving may begin with a call to law enforcement. Sometimes the situation calls for a restraining order. A survivor may need a safe space to stay immediately or transitional housing. They may need help moving. They may need therapy. If children are involved, a domestic violence situation can be even more fraught and complicated. Sometimes survivors stay because of the kids. Sometimes they need to leave to protect them. We called this series Behind Closed Doors because domestic violence often happens there until someone comes out for help. In this first episode, KCBX reporter Melanie Sen spoke with law enforcement and a local survivor. I meet with Elle at a downtown cafe in San Luis Obispo. She tells me openly about what it took for her to get out of an abusive relationship, asking only that I don't use her name, and so Elle is a pseudonym. My partner and I were together for nine years. He was so good at making me feel wonderful in the beginning. A low rumble of tension developed around her partner's drinking problem. And their emotional abuse of me. It was just pretty constant, this sort of manipulation and insults. Eventually, the abuse turned physical. During one fight, Elle says they were struggling when she fell and got a bloody nose. He grabbed me by my hair and pulled me into the garage. 
She got away from him, ran to the neighbors, and asked them to call the police. As the police sirens got closer and closer, he just screamed at me, you did this, you did this. Deciding to leave an abusive relationship is often a massive ordeal. It can involve a financial strain, legal hoops, housing complications, not to mention the emotional toll. Advocates and survivors say it can be a years-long process. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, on average it takes someone seven attempts to leave an abusive relationship. For some people, a desperate call to law enforcement might be the first step in getting out. Commander Chad Nicholson at the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Department says an abused partner may get stuck in a rut, thinking that abuse is normal. They're kind of blinded by the fact that they're being physically assaulted and abused, and and it can be extensive. According to the state of California Department of Justice, the number of domestic violence-related calls to law enforcement in San Luis Obispo County gradually rose over the last decade, with more than 1,500 calls in 2020 during covid And these are just calls and don't include unreported incidents. But when law enforcement does get that call in response. The first thing we want to do is is separate the parties that are involved. You know, you want to stop any type of abuse that's happening immediately. The laws are very, very strict on domestic violence, Nicholson says. And California law states that this is a you-shall-arrest scenario if the elements of a crime are met and deputies have probable cause. They will arrest what Nicholson refers to as the dominant aggressor. But often the dominant aggressor gets bailed out of jail by their own partner, he says. So it's just kind of a vicious cycle. When deputies arrested Elle's partner after that first 911 call, she was still stuck in that cycle. She went so far as to write the district attorney a letter to plead her partner's case. She also bailed him out of jail. I campaigned like crazy to protect him. I'm still paying that credit card debt. Elle thought the fight and arrest was their lowest point, but a few weeks later, they had another violent fight. I locked him out of a room, and he shattered a window, broke into the room, and came at me with a screwdriver, and I called 911 again. The next morning, she packed a bag and left the house, but when she came back to move out, she couldn't get in. He had changed the locks, even though her name was on the lease. A friend encouraged Elle to reach out to Lumina Alliance, an organization that helps survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. Lumina coordinates with a local moving company that helps domestic violence survivors move to new housing for free. Elle returned to the house with the movers, five girlfriends to help her pack, a locksmith, and two peace officers. The locksmith opens up the door and it's empty. It's trashed and it's empty. Everything was gone. He then began to stalk her, showing up at events she was attending. She realized she needed a restraining order, which Lumina Alliance helped her file. The court granted the restraining order, but she still needed to serve her ex. He showed up at an event that he knew I was to be at. It was weird and scary for everybody. She called the police and told the officer that she had the completed restraining order paperwork. He agreed to detain her ex, and together they served him. She could not imagine how other people with fewer resources would be able to get out of a domestic violence situation. It just seems impossible to navigate. The process of leaving caused Elle many mixed emotions. And yet, when a friend asked her if she felt sad or sorry for him, she said she did. And I do. Nobody acts like that if they're well. Ultimately, Elle went from trying to protect him to realizing that she had to leave to protect herself. For KCBX, I'm Melanie Sen. Intimate partner violence includes behaviors that are meant to control, frighten, manipulate, or physically hurt a partner. 
and sometimes the abuse is sexual. In this second episode of a three-part series about domestic violence in San Luis Obispo County, KCBX reporter Melanie Sen spoke with advocates about the extra barriers undocumented survivors face and how difficult it can be to leave. At the Link Family Resource Center in Paso Robles, advocates are ordering food, as they do two mornings a week, to stock the food pantry. Arlen Merced is one of them. We usually serve around, I want to say more than 300 families a month. All of the advocates at the Link are bilingual in Spanish and English. So the Spanish-speaking community feels comfortable coming with us. Merced has been working at the Link for two years. It's becoming well-known as a place families can come for support with finances, legal hardship, and food insecurity. Link advocates can also get help for people, including undocumented people, who have experienced sexual assault or are experiencing domestic violence. said, who is 25, knows too well the barriers these individuals are facing. She's dealt with all of them, the undocumented status, sexual assault, and intimate partner violence. Merced arrived in the United States from Mexico at the age of seven. She is undocumented, though she's a DACA recipient. The sexual assault happened at a fraternity house and almost derailed her from finishing at San Jose State. It was my third year of college. Her situation worsened when the boyfriend she dated since high school became physically aggressive. I did grow up seeing some domestic violence. I just thought, well, an argument's going to happen and somebody's going to get hit. And so that's why when I went through my own sexual assault, I thought I can't fight back because what if it gets worse? Against the odds, Merced became the first person in her family to earn a bachelor's degree. Afterwards, she moved back to Paso Robles and reached out to Lumina Alliance, which helps people impacted by sexual assault or domestic violence. My first therapy was just crying and crying. I was holding on to so many things for so many years that that was the only way that I could start healing. These difficult experiences compelled Merced to help others. She tells me about one particular woman who came to the link for support. To respect the woman's confidentiality, Merced tells me I can call her Milagro, which means miracle in Spanish. Milagro was allergic to her husband's semen, a little-known condition that is painful and can be life-threatening. She'd been to the emergency room several times. The condition is entirely preventable with condom use. Milagro's husband refused to wear one. Merced says she asked her, Hey, like, have you talked to your husband? You know, letting him know, like, this happens. Milagro told Merced that her husband didn't care, that because she is his wife, it's her responsibility, her duty. Angie Gonzalez, the advocacy manager at Lumina Alliance, says that oftentimes survivors who have experienced intimate partner violence have also been sexually assaulted by their partner. The narrative that they had formed in their head was, this is just how things are. And I can't complain. I have to accept it. If my partner wants to have sexual intercourse, I don't have a say whether I can say yes or no. Gonzalez says that in the Latino community, intimate partner violence is normalized. We don't talk about it. It's something that happens behind closed doors, and it stays behind closed doors. Milagro, however, was ready to be free from her husband's abuse. Merced took on the challenge of helping her file a restraining order online. But as Milagro got closer to leaving, her husband stalked her and threatened her. She feared he would take their three children to Mexico. In the end, though, she got the restraining order and was able to move out. Merced secured her financial assistance through Lumina for rent and helped Milagro get a job. 
finally free, Milagro could begin to heal and to live independently. The last time I saw her, we were both talking about how we were very proud of each other. It's challenging for anyone trying to get out of an abusive relationship to leave and put their life back together. Angie Gonzalez says that the situation can be extra difficult for undocumented people as they may not have transportation or a bank account. They may not be able to secure affordable housing without a credit score. Even worse, she imagines, is the fear. I don't necessarily speak the language. And if I reach out, are they going to ask me if I'm here illegally? If I call law enforcement, are they going to be able to assist me or are they going to deport me? And so there is a lot of fear, just a lot of barriers. Luckily, there are caring, compassionate people in the county who know that people, all people, suffering from intimate partner violence need help. And they've made it their life work to provide it. I'm Melanie Sen. You're listening to KCBX. I'm Gabriela Fernandez. It can take a lot of times for a person to leave an abusive marriage, especially when children are involved. But sometimes the need to protect the children makes leaving even more necessary. In the last episode of this three-part series, KCBX's Melanie Sen speaks with a local survivor about what it took for her to finally get out. Lulu grew up in a little town in Guerrero, Mexico. When she turned 15, she visited her older sister in Cancun and stayed. She enrolled in school where she met a boy her age. Soon they started dating. To protect their identities, Lulu asked me to refer to him as Santiago. Lulu is her childhood nickname. He was her first boyfriend and was patient and tender with her, she tells me. Those were the things that made me love him more than I already loved him, because he was never abusive to me, and I felt that he cared for me so, so much. They finished high school and she began working full-time at a hotel. At this point, they were living together. The trouble began when Santiago started drinking and staying out late. He often arrived home at dawn with chupatones, hickeys on his neck. Then something awful transpired. Santiago needed money to help his brother, who had caused an accident while drunk driving. I tell him, there's a person where I work who can loan the money, but I don't like him. He makes me uncomfortable. Santiago told her to borrow the money. The man lent it to them with this caveat. If you don't return it, I'll have to charge you another way. Santiago assured her that they would return the money on time, but they didn't. The man was the hotel's housekeeping supervisor. He went into the room where she was cleaning. Every time he wanted, he just came to the room and closed the door. It was disgusting, so damn disgusting. Lulu finally quit the hotel and moved to another town with a girlfriend. It was the first time she left Santiago. He begged her to come back. Her parents were pressuring her to marry him. He agreed. Todo salió bien. Everything went fine. There we were. Time passed, and then problems began. And then more problems. They wanted to have children, but she didn't become pregnant. He continued to drink. After a big fight, she decided to leave again. But this time, she would go farther. She joined her brother in California, in San Luis Obispo. After she was here for some time, she finally spoke to Santiago. He told her his life was nothing without her. She told him, you know how much I love you. But at the same time, I want to be free. I want to breathe. When he attempted suicide, she caved and helped him come to California. Within six months, she was pregnant, which felt like a miracle, she says. But Santiago still drank too much. And after she gave birth to their son, she found out he was having an affair. 
Le digo en serio. I tell him, I thought you had changed. I thought the things that happened in Mexico stayed there and that we were going to start over. Look, we have an angel that God has given us to care for that we wanted so badly. She left him again. He threatened to kill himself. She came back. She became pregnant again and gave birth to their daughter. But the drinking and philandering didn't stop and only got worse over the years. He was supposed to take care of their children while she worked but she would come home to find him passed out drunk, the children neglected. Things came to a head when the children were in elementary school at Pacheco. The school principal called me and said, if Santiago shows up drunk again, I'm going to have to call the police. And I told him, do it, please do it. And he did. Santiago wasn't arrested because he wasn't driving, but it was an important moment for Lulu. The intervention made her realize other people could help, And so later, when she confronted Santiago about his drinking and he threatened her life, she realized she could call the domestic violence hotline. I called and they told me, grab what you can and grab your children and go. They were picked up at a designated location and taken somewhere safe to stay. And there, they provided therapy for the kids and me. They made me feel that I wasn't alone in this. It's incredible that strangers are helping you. It makes you feel strong enough to keep going. What surprised her were the other women there, including white women. I said to myself, there are all kinds of women here. Does the same thing happen to all of us? That was the last time she left Santiago. Like many survivors, she realized she needed support to be able to do it. This time, having that support, she did not go back. For KCBX, I'm Melanie Sen. Everyone I spoke to who got out of an abusive situation saw it and received support. Help is available. Lumino Alliance helps people affected by sexual assault and domestic violence. They have a 24-hour crisis and information line, 805-545-8888. All of their advocates are bilingual. I reported these stories while participating in the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism's 2023 Domestic Violence Impact Fund, which provided training, mentoring, and funding to support this project. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Gabriela Fernandez. Up next, the nonprofit story. Welcome to the Nonprofit Story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mux, your host. I'm excited that today we have Wendy Lewis, who is the president and CEO of El Camino Homeless Organization, known as ECHO. And uh, along with her, we have Austin Solheim, and he is the director of operations and development. And welcome to the Nonprofit Story. Thank you for having us. Austin, thank you for being here, too. I think you're kind of new with the organization. Huh? I am. Well, I just celebrated a year. So, Wendy, let's start with you. Tell us again about ECHO. We have been around for over 20 years. We're a longtime organization founded in North County by incredible volunteers. Back then, there weren't homeless services in North County, and so these volunteers came together, 
over meals, right? That mm. first point of making connection. And they uh, started serving meals. Um, they rotate from church to church. And then as homelessness evolved and the face changed, Echo made that ev- evolution as well. So we've grown from just meals to comprehensive, supportive services that get people back into housing. That is our main goal, is to help people on their journey, mm-hmm. support them with the services they need, very tailored to that individual. And it's making a huge difference in our county. Not only in Atascadero now, but you also have a branch. Isn't that correct? We do. We have uh, two locations, two campuses in North County. We serve anybody in our county or anybody who needs those services. But currently, we have 110 90-day program beds that give people that stability, that place to get those comprehensive services, which include case management and a tailored plan. And hopefully, um, we at some point add 20 additional beds. We're working on that in our Paso Robles location. So that would make us 130 life-changing beds an opportunity for people to get back into housing. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that so people understand the need and what happens and the results of this. But I want to now bring Austin into the conversation. Also, Austin, as the Director of Operations and Development, tell us a little bit about why your position is so important. I've had the opportunity to work in homeless services for several years. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I've never come across an organization like ECHO. Mm-hmm. And so not only do I get to be on site, on on campus, working with those folks, helping our staff, really, you know, setting the foundations and the empowerment. But then I get to take all those stories out into the community and share it. Is there really that much homelessness in this county? Yeah, unfortunately, the need is is tremendous. Currently on our wait list, we have 69 families, which include 37 children. And wow. so that's just, that's just us. There's other organizations doing this type of work as mm-hmm. well. And so in the last point in time count, there are about 1,500 people facing homelessness counted within our county. Mm. And between us and partners, there's about 300 total beds. And wow. so you see the need, you see that gap. And Echo's working really hard to um, meet part of that need. Right, We're not the only solution in the county. We're part of that solution, and that is bringing on new locations, bringing on more shelter beds, but also those comprehensive services that really, truly help people get back into housing. It's not you come for a night and you leave in the morning. Mm -hmm. It's a 90-day program where you have that stability. Your belongings can say while you look for employment or do those steps you need to do. So it really isn't just a shelter bed that makes that life-changing difference. It's the program and then our team and volunteers. Mm Unfortunately, we're at 100% capacity, mm-hmm. right? Every single night, we're filling every single one of our beds. And as someone moves out into that housing, mm-hmm. you know, we're filling that bed that very same day, trying to get someone into that program and offer them that stability. So one of the components that we've added on to our programs is an outreach component. So for the folks that maybe aren't in our shelters yet, aren't in our 90-day emergency program, right, we are still working with them to identify housing goals, to identify the barriers that are stopping them. doesn't mean that someone can't be working on getting their ID, their social security, start working and engaging with case management and working on that housing plan and the steps that they'll need to take to get back on housing. Because when we have someone come into that program, we want to set them up for success as much as possible. So meeting them where they're at, whether they're in that shelter or not, and providing those services is crucial to our success Mm -hmm. as well. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we hear that people are choosing homelessness. They're deciding to do that. They're not willing to change. Mm -hmm. And we find with the resources we provide that it's the trust that needs to be rebuilt, that they have been um, alienated from 
society and they they have to relearn that trust and there's also the misconception that it's the person that you see pushing the shopping cart and that's who are the unhoused in our county and we serve men women children seniors veterans mm-hmm. it is a gamut of people that find themselves in this situation and and the majority are it's um, an emergency situation you know a spouse passed away or my family member got sick and now I went to take care of them and now they've lost their house and so it's those situations that we are there for. We are there f- to build that trust and uh, help someone recognize that they do want housing and they do want that stability. And our numbers are pretty significant. It, traditional shelters, that night by night, if you help 10% of those you serve back into housing, you're considered successful. Mm. We average over 50% of That's the people incredible. that come into our shelters and our campuses they get back into housing. And so that's what we want the community to get behind. Are you working with housing organizations in a partnership to help with this? We're working with partners throughout Slow County, but our Paso Robles campus specifically, it's actually a joint campus with one of our partners. And we share that with the Housing Authority of San Luis Obispo. Oh, great. It's not just Echo folks that are going there, but we're able to have a campus that can serve people for that starting point. One of the incredible things that, that we like to share and one of the questions that comes up too is, all right, you're doing all this work, you're seeing all this success, but how many people are staying housed? And that's something that we track and we continue to follow up with those that we serve. of the individuals that have gone through and successfully graduated our 90-day program. Do they continue to be able to get some services from you if needed? They are. They are. Mm -hmm. And it's it comes back to Echo's foundation, what we originally talked about. Serving that meal every single night is still an opportunity to anyone in the community. Not only do they have access to our campus on a regular basis, but they have access to their community. They can know that this is a place that they can come, there are people that they can call, and there's built-in structure with our case management too. So if they're they're leaving, they know that they have that foundation and relationship and that trust to be able to call when a situation arises. One of my favorite parts is often they are, are become our volunteers Volunteers, So oh, they've seen um, what Echo's provided them and they mm-hmm. want to be part of giving back. Nice. And we actually even have some team members that are Echo staff that used our services years ago and were successful and now are part of the team. Easier for someone to say, hey, I've been there. I know what you're mm-hmm. dealing with and yeah. I'm here for you. And so we're very proud of that. And if you're just joining us, this is the nonprofit story. I'm your host, Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I have with me Wendy Lewis. She is the president and CEO of El Camino homeless organization known as ECHO, and Austin Solheim is the Director of Operations and Development with ECHO. But I want to ask, don't you have some collaborative initiatives that are going on? Do you work with other people that help to give extended services? So one of the things that we've been very, very good at is partnering with outside community resources. Our goal is to reduce as many barriers to services as possible by bringing them right on site. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that Echo is providing those services. It means that we're bringing that partner that's going to follow this person through shelter, through housing, and mm-hmm. onto that to really connect them with resources, whether it be something focused on mental health, focused on physical health, focused mm-hmm. on just general well being, right? right? All of these things are important and crucial support groups and foundation that help someone, one, get into housing, but stay housed. So those are important for us to bring on site through multiple collaborations, community partners, volunteers, and even occasionally a staff skill set too, just to be able to provide those resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, a huge list of those resources 
resources that mm-hmm. we provide. It's, we're serving so many different people. So we have parenting class, tutoring for the kids. We have reading programs. We have financial literacy. We have workforce development. We have physical well-being. Like yoga teachers will donate their time and come do yoga by our garden. And we do nutrition and all these different components because everybody needs something different. One of my favorite things is we do serve so many children that we really try to provide everything we would for our own children. And so even recently, we had a call to action to the community and said, we have about 40 kids. These are their wishes for what they want to be for Halloween. The community within two days filled all those wishes and then said, oh, wait, the wishes are filled. Can I do something else? And it was just amazing. And I had the pleasure of looking out my office window and I see one of our young kiddos and he He's Woody, and he was just had the biggest smile on his face, and that's what the community <laughs> does for us, and the kids yeah. and the families we serve, and often the adults get involved with mm-hmm. that. It might be an art program for the kids, and you see adults that participate because it's just a sense of belonging, a sense of community. So those resources are really part of the success and the secret to making the successes possible. You know, I think people kind of wonder what is the day to day and hour by hour situation within the homeless shelter? Are people there all day? It sounds like everything's there or are they out in the community? And what is going on at the homeless shelter? It's a question that comes up really often. And when we do tours in the morning and in the, the early afternoon, everyone kind of asks that question, oh, where, every, where is everybody? And, and the answer to that is everybody's at school. Everybody's at work. Everybody's out and about doing things, but come to that five o'clock dinner time, right? And you'll see members of the community coming out from everywhere because they want that connection with each other. They want that community. They want to feel that sense of belonging that we've created in our culture and we're able to offer. And Echo really prides ourselves in being very efficient with the funding we receive. We receive a lot of funding through the county and the city, but also the community, about half and half. But the reason we're so efficient is our volunteer pool over a million dollars in what we would have to pay for our volunteers provide annually and so it is a huge component and even the evening meals that take place both locations serve about a hundred people each night those are brought in from caring community members from church groups to service groups to just families that want to be part of that so i encourage people visit echoshelter.org you can find out tons more about us how to help how to get involved i've had the opportunity actually the blessing to be able to come in and serve food or to just provide it and to do some other things and it does change you so important for the community to know kind of our philosophy as a team we're always looking to do better and how can we get more people back into housing this mm-hmm. year and so the most in echoes history was 114 individuals and families in one year and our goal was 120 and so far this year we've helped 156 individuals and families back into permanent supportive housing. 156 families back into permanent housing that's incredible we as a staff have really strived to adapt and change that past robles campus and make it more friendly and welcoming but the amazing part is the ownership that the former residents have taken over it too and i have former residents right now that take care of our garden program in Paso. We even have a former resident that his way of giving back is providing music 
And so he comes on a nightly basis and he plays music for all of the residents for dinner. And he takes music requests. We even have a few singers and even some uh, local guitarists that come out and play with us too. So it's really just become incredible to see the ownership that the residents have taken over that campus and just the thankfulness that they have shared with us for being in Paso Robles and offering those services to them in their community. It sounds like you're letting the deep humanity of a person who has been wounded in some ways come forth and become whole again with this program too. A lot of the people we serve have had those early childhood traumas, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of what we do is to help mend those and support them and different resources and it really becomes their community and that that um, is so important because they've lost that sense of community and then echo becomes that and sometimes people think oh the shelters are going to be scary I don't want to come serve a meal or I don't want to have my kids there and once you experience mm-hmm. it you it's just a peaceful community dinner coming together and the other night we had just I don't know we were out in Atascadero and out by the garden and we were able to go back to using plates, right? During COVID, we had to use disposable containers and people would take them out and not everybody would be able to stay. And so we finally got to the point where we brought those back online and it was just the community coming together for dinner. You don't even have to be staying with us. People were in the garden. There were families kind of chatting. They're all sitting together and not a um, a spot was empty, right? So if somebody needed a spot, you saw people Uh, go, you know, move down and create that spot for someone just to have dinner and belong. Echo is not the solution, right? But we are a piece of the solution and we want to create a place where individuals in the community can learn more. So whether you are coming on our website, whether you are sharing our stories on our social media, whether you're becoming a volunteer on one of our campuses, there are so many ways to just get involved, to learn more, to give back and Mm -hmm. to support different pieces of what we're doing but we just can't do this without the community and so we're just so grateful for the support that we have but we're always looking for new ways to engage new conversations to have and really you know if you're hearing this and you're listening we just ask that you share share what we're doing share with your community about what's going on and and give the opportunity for for us to you know keep working Mm -hmm. in here we have a really, really fun way for people to get involved and kind of um, experience the, just the echo vibe. I don't know how else to describe it, but it just feels good to be part of what we're doing. And on Thanksgiving morning, we have the North County Turkey Trot. It's around the Atascadero Lake. We have a, a wonderful Mr. Turkey. He's our mascot. People take pictures with them. It's trotters. It's walkers. It's really like really great runners come out. And we've grown each year. This will be our fifth year. And last year we had over 600 people come out on Thanksgiving morning. It's just a suggested $20 donation, but it feels so good to come do something good on Thanksgiving and then go celebrate with your family. And so people can visit echoshelter.org to find out more about that incredibly fun North County turkey trip. And I do think on your website, you also have a place where you talk about some of the things you need, some of the physical things, the clothing, the blankets, the toys, or whatever else that you actually need, and maybe actually some monetary uh, donations. You probably would accept those, I would think. Oh, always, always. (laughs) Okay, because there's such a need in our community, and you're doing so much. And right now, heading into winter, it's those winter jackets, colder weather items, because in North County, it gets really chilly Mm -hmm. in the morning and the night. And so definitely encourage people to visit and see the wish list, echoshelter.org. I think one of the biggest things is if you really want to learn more is to go to the shelter and ask for a tour. 
Absolutely. And we'd love to have you anytime you can reach us. Um, our phone numbers are on the website and there's also a way directly to email us. If you ever have questions, you can always reach out to our team. We're always looking to have a conversation. Well, I want to thank you so much. Um, Austin, thank you for being here. And Wendy, thank you for being here. I've been speaking with Wendy Lewis, the president and CEO of El Camino Homeless Organization, known as ECHO, and Austin Solheim. He is the director of operations and development, also at ECHO. And this is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and this has been The Nonprofit Story. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Mm-hmm.